Listener Production. Hi, this is Charles Fairley. Welcome back to Unsung Business Heroes, where we talk to small business about big ideas. Today we're going to hear from Ted Egan, one of the directors of Threat Metrics, a fraud algorithm software company. It's a fascinating story because Ted came from the back of Burke literally on a farm and just recently sold his business for a billion dollars. Along the way, he's met some really famous people, which he's surprisingly comfortable with. From Ted's humble beginnings to his massive recent win, we collect some real gems. So sit back and listen to Ted Egan as he describes his amazing career. So I grew up in uh, uh, Westerberk on a small sheep cattle station, uh, about 100 kilometres west on the uh, highway. And um, actually closest town was actually Angonia. Um, and uh, Angonia is pretty much known today as an Aboriginal se- settlement. But um, um, back in the old days, um, pretty much everyone that was buried there for the last, I guess, 100 years or so was someone related to me. Really? So the family was around that district for a long, long time. I used to feel like I was related to everyone in Burke, Angonia and the district around. And what brought you to the city then, Ted? Growing up in the in a dry, desolate sort of place, it was pretty tough going. Um, always wanted to travel and I wanted to probably get an education. Um, I was surrounded by some good family members who were quite educated. They're not really my direct relatives, but they were, they were people who mentored me. And so I wanted to join the Defence Force and uh, I was told to go and get a trade first before I go and get a degree. And um, I joined the Navy. So how long were you in the Navy for and what happened after that? So I spent a decade in the Navy. It was pretty interesting. Um, you know, joined up as an apprentice uh, to get a trade because that was what my mentors advised me. Um, could have gone on and probably gone to university or, you know, gone to college. Um, there was no ad for in those days. There was, you could go off to Duntroon if you're in the Army, uh, Creswell if you're in the, in the Navy, but go for a university. And the Air Force, I'm not real sure about how they went about it. But, um, um, yeah, so they were the, the main main sort of avenues that you go through and they're at HMAS Narimba which was out at uh, Quakers Hill, Blacktown area, uh, was uh, apprentice training school so you know I was a you know, young kid who sort of uh, um, joined the Navy, come to Sydney, you know, not really knowing much about the ocean really, and wanting to you know, challenge myself uh, wanting to get a trade, so you know, we we caught the bus at the recruiting school in the, the recruiting centre in the um, central, where it was. Then they drove us out to Quakers Hill, and the QMG um, chief QMG at the time, quartermaster gunner, he's standing there with a big stick, and he starts yelling and screaming at us and telling us we're cannon fodder. Um, <laughs> so you know, that's the first experience I remember, and his name was Bomber Brown, and. Uh, and uh, he, you know, we kind of got to know him over the years, and you know, he he seemed like an old, really old guy when we first met him, and then we realised as we got older in the navy that he was he wasn't actually that old, and he was only a couple of years ahead of us, really. He's just trying to scare you. Yeah, well, he did it all for the right reasons, but um, but many of those kids that started out in the first in the first three months were weeded out, 
so only the kids that were going to last their time mm-hmm. um, were um, stuck pa- past the three months, so everyone was kind of um, got rid of by the first three months that were, weren't going to be any good to the Navy. And then later on, um, you know, two years later, we, we were um, then posted to our first postings. Pretty interesting. First posting, everything I wanted to do was not, not on the list. And so there was a you know a couple dozen of us that were herded into a into a uh, auditorium and told that we were all going off to become submariners. Oof. So um, so we we did that. We went off and did our training at here. Yep. Um, and so um, yeah, that was really good. And then we you know got our postings uh, after we'd done through our service training. So initially there's pretty intense training for the first three to six months um, to get your qualifications. And then you're stuck in a submarine for uh, a fair while. Um, I was lucky. I kind of did that piece and then got a chance to go and go on, uh, patrol boats and other areas of the Navy and check it out. Is it a bit scary being on a submarine? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I was there the same time a couple of guys went missing and, and, um, you know, so the rules tightened up and, you know, everything wasn't as, uh, you know, fancy free. It was very rules driven and, you know, very professional. And, and I mean, you know, all the guys that I, I work with were, you know, great guys. And some of them have gone on today. Like some of my, so one of my uh, classmates is now in charge of the submarine acquisition in France. So that's great, you know, and they're still in the Navy today. Sure. And you didn't want to stay on in the Navy there? No, I wanted to get a career outside. You know, I always wanted to be, you know, I was an engineer. So engineer is not a salesperson. So, and I didn't think there was, you know, you know, I wanted to earn the big bucks. I wanted to learn about, I wanted to travel further. I wanted to do my own thing. I wanted to start my own business. Um, and to do that, I needed to learn what to do. And um, um, I guess, you know, stepping back, couple steps back in in my life when I was at school in high school uh, right at the beginning of high school in the oh, really the early late 70s um, we started a radio station so back in the day that uh, it was still around today it's called 2GB radio um, you know Outback Radio which is uh, how it started and not peop- many people know this and I don't even think the people who run it today know um, they um, um, started the radio station. We, it was just a mic and a and a couple uh, um, a turntable and and it was just like the old Dick Smith setup, uh, two way radio. And we started it and uh, there was a couple of people who sponsored it in the school, <laughs> and uh, we got funding to build a radio station. So we built studios. There was two studios built. Uh, we got records and everything. So officially got set up. Records were sent from, um, I don't know where we got the records from, but we had a library full of records. And as kids, uh, because I still had to go back out home um, on the school bus while I was waiting in the afternoon or, you know, I'd I'd skip classes and do uh, be a DJ for a while, right? And so the kids used to rotate morning, afternoon and evenings and we would each take turns to do the radio and we'd also do the news and we'd do all sorts of things. We... It was great for um, you know giving confidence to kids in a radio station because you run it. You were you were, you were sure. the DJ. You were the jock sure. um, that was on the radio. And um, I guess years later, when I left the left the navy, 
going and working in a radio station like 2GB and later 2CH and back to 2GB was all, um, you know, one of those things where you kind of thought, oh, well, this is a natural progression back to what I know. Um, so, yeah, we, we learnt a little bit, you know, it was a, quite an exciting time. Um, I never got to talk on 2GB, but, uh, you know, got to do the sales thing. But, you know, that marketing sales and those sort of things, and we had good training, I guess, from that. What do you put that down to? What do you think made you good at it? Driven. Just being driven. Yep. Um, Why are you driven? Um, I, I guess I wanted to achieve results. Um, I wanted, I had goals. I set myself goals. And, you know, I was focused on those goals ever since I was a kid. Sure. Like, even before, right, the youngest age as a, as a child was about setting goals. And, um, you know, without goals, I feel lost. So normally, like, you know, where I am today is, you know, I have to set new goals. So each time I set new goals and I have long-term goals and, and short-term goals and, and this is what you do. And yep. I guess sales is no different. You know, you've got a, a number that you want to achieve, you know, that puts, you know, um, food on the table, pays your um, rent or pays your um, mortgage and you're focused on doing that as a, as a key um, yep. and you want to um, set your family up as well. What do you think in your background put such a drive in you? So when I was a kid growing up in isolation in the bush, um, growing up with lots of adults, um, hearing lots of stories, reading books as a child, uh, wanting to do something that was uh, that other people haven't done. You know, when you do that, you, you kind of strive to break the boundaries, do things that other people haven't done. It was more... I, I guess, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're a child and and it's always been with me. If someone said I couldn't do something, I would try and do it. I, I don't really know what makes me do this or makes me want to achieve more. Doesn't matter what I do in life, it's the same thing. It's every every time I I, I hit a barrier, I try to break it. So when I was a child at school, the girls are always the smartest in the in the class. Don't know why, but I always wanted to beat them in the classroom. Um, so, you know, when it come to exams, I didn't want to be. You know, we had a kid that came to the school who was, um, I think, he had photographic memory, and I couldn't figure out how he could always remember everything and beat us in the exams. Um, so I wanted to beat him. So that was my target. If I can beat this guy and have the same sort of memory as this guy, that would be a good target to have. So you're aiming high, but do you think your, your mum and particularly your dad were proud of you, what you've achieved? Uh, for many years, my dad never said anything. It's, it's only, only right now, in the, well, like my dad's now in a home and um, he's got dementia, uh, but you know, he has days where he, he knows things and um, he was able to say he was very proud of me the first time in my life after, you know, 49 years, nearly wow. 50 years, yeah. that he's ever said it. And before that, when I was a child, he would say, you'd never, you'd fail. So when I went off to, you know, join the Navy or I went off to do something, you know, I was racing in motorbikes as a kid, you know, we'd go to the Gymkhana and I'd, you know, be on my motorbike. It was always my number one goal to come first. Do you think he was just trying to fire you up and was saying it on purpose? No, no, I just, I, I don't think he realised what he was doing. Um, and I, I just, I think a lot of people really um, 
you know, today everyone goes, oh, you achieved this, you achieved that. Um, but what they don't realise is that, um, you know, I didn't want to be the kid on the, you know, left on the bottom of the pile. Yeah, um, family's yeah. important to you, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a son and, um, and a very lovely wife and um, they've been very solid people behind me as well. Yeah, because you've been away from home a lot, haven't you? Yeah, I guess after radio, um, I you know got involved in starting up a startup, which arguably was the first dot com to be listed. I think Liberty One, um, I think it's called Liberty One, mm-hmm. was the first dot com. Yep. By one half hour, thirty minutes, it was listed on stock exchange half an hour before we were. Uh, but you know they tried to buy us and we t- tore up the check, so to speak. Um, um, figuratively speaking Hmm. but um, yeah we just did our thing and we grew a business that was called KidsNet Safe Internet Access for Kids and Families Um, it was actually started by a barrister and and his son and from a sales point of view I came in and helped them you know build that out and you know, jumped in the car and went around Australia and, you know, back in 90s, you know, 97, 98, um, you know, the internet was really in its early stages in Australia. ISPs weren't very common. Um, it wasn't, it was a totally different world. Um, and so we built out a, um, a good little business and that was listed on the stock exchange, as I said. Um, some was made money, some didn't, um, and got to meet few people around the world that invested in our company um, and and uh, yeah that business grew and then after I left that business um, I went and did my own thing consulting mm-hmm. and I ended up working for T-Systems Group or Deutsche Telekom um, and they were the guys and the reason I went there was actually because they were going to buy um, Optus and I thought that was a good opportunity to um, get involved in you know, a new space, and it was technology and, and the internet. And back then, Optus was owned by Cable and Wireless. And Deutsche Telekom was on a buying spree of telcos all around the world. But, you know, then, you know, Deutsche Telekom did a deal with um, Singtel. Singtel bought Optus, and the rest was history. So we went along and we built another business for T-Systems, which is all their systems integration arm and, and, and business. And we grew that out to um, a quite a profitable consulting business uh, across Australia. Um, uh, Deutsche Telekom acquired a number of um, systems integrators. Um, and then um, later on, I, I left that business to um, do some more consulting, but companies like, I guess, Intel and Hewlett Packard before we started the company where we are today. There's two companies, two separate companies, um, Trust Defender and um, Threat Metrics. So one was focused on spam, and the other one was focused on um, uh, focused on uh, malware. And wh- the reason Threat, you know, Trust Defender was created was mainly because when we looked at the way that malware was targeting banks was targeting consumers in e-commerce and so forth, the average person out there had no idea what security was. They, they hoped that their antivirus vendor stopped it. But we understood that malware 
was very sophisticated and could walk around pretty much all the antivirus or the blacklisted software that was out there. And even your firewalls were being switched off or walked around and, and, and beaten. So nefarious software was getting more nefarious and more active in the way, uh, creative in the way it could um, outsmart the security uh, applications. Um, so we thought, well, we'll create this uh, software. Um, I met a guy, um, Andreas Baumhoff, um, and Andreas um, had actually came up with the idea about the software. Um, and I said, look, you know, we can build a business around this when we got talking. So Andreas was out here selling another software uh, that he'd created. And so when we got talking, I said, well, why don't we set up a business and, and create this technology and I'll help you take it to market. And, and so, yeah, we did. And we you know, cut this 50-50 deal um, and, you know, working out of each other's house. Uh, we worked for months on figuring out, you know, presentation, business case, what are we actually selling, how are we going to make money. So we started selling it over the internet. So, you know, um, you could download the software off the internet, just like your antivirus software. Um, but when you automatically clicked on it, um, downloaded it, when you clicked on a bank account, it would secure the bank account. The idea was it would secure you before you put in your username and password. That was in 2005. So that was selling to consumers, but how did you get into the banks being your big clients? So we had to scale the business. So, you know, selling it one by one is a pretty hard yards and you've got to have advertising dollars and marketing dollars and, and you have to think, how, how are we going to scale this? How do we turn something where we earn, you know, we get 70 clients a week into 70,000 clients a week? So the idea was, um, and I kind of thought, oh, well, the smart idea is I'll take it to a bank. A bank needs it. So how do I get a bank to sell our software on our behalf and integrate it as part of So as, as soon as someone wants to you know, sign up to a bank, they get our software. Mm-hmm. So we got talking to a few people. We had a few um, um, people who were interested in what we're doing. So we decided to go and um, go along to a credit union banking conference and so we did we went along and I got talking and it was just you know around chatting with CEOs of credit unions and mutuals and uh, I ran into a uh, CEO uh, Ray Battle Ray was uh, CEO of uh, Banana Coast Credit Union and Ray they were all talking about threats and you know malware and so forth and I said I might have a solution for you I can help you so Ray took my card and three months later he rang me up and he said, can you fly up here? And uh, we flew up and um, pretty interesting character. I had to chase him around, go out to his farm to chase around cows before he'd uh, kind of let me in the door. <laughs> um, and um, luckily I'd grown up in the bush and knew how to chase, round a, up cow. A, few, chase <laughs> a cow and round them up and ride a four-wheeler and so forth. Um, so anyway, we went out and uh, we went back to the the um, head office of uh, Banana Coast Credit Union um, had Andreas with me. Uh, we we uh, sat down and presented our what we could do, showcased uh, what our software could do um, and how it works. And um, we we were really early stage at that stage. We really didn't have a contract. So here's the point: was that uh, uh, Ray's secretary, the company secretary, basically said, "All right, we can drop a uh, contract for you." Um, so that, that was the first contract was drawn up and they wrote a check for me, told Andreas and I to go away and three months later to produce the um, server 
And we set it up as a software as a service. So back then it was a many service offering. So software as a service as we know, or cloud-based services as we know it today. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really uh, known in 2005, 2006. And so, you know, we kind of went, all right, we're going to do this. Luckily, we had some friends with the data centre and we had a secure data centre that met the banking requirements. So that we, first and foremost, we we already had that facility and that was in Ataman, which was set up by the federal government anyway, mm-hmm. the, the data centre. So we're able to lease that. Um, we met all the security requirements. We're able to meet all the technical requirements. And the uh, bank basically went out and did the marketing for us. And that was, that was brilliant because, you know, as soon as we went live three months later, um, there was a media write-up, it was in the news everywhere, this little tiny credit union in the middle of nowhere on the, on the mid-north coast uh, had launched this new solution. And probably three months into that process, we had a phone call or an email from the Bank of America. Wow. So we went from 60,000 customers to how do we scale up to do 60 million customers? Wow, um, and And that was pretty tough as well. So we went, all right, how do we do this? So we've got to raise money. So we uh, did a bit of media um, in the US and uh, tried to build our profile so someone knew about us because I didn't know anyone in the US at that stage. Um, and um, so we went over to the US and actually at the time when we got the email, we met a, um, a gentleman um, who was speaking at the OzCert conference in, on, the, on, on the Gold Coast um, who took a liking to what we were doing. Um, and he, he ended up joining our board for a short time. Uh, but made introductions to the likes of uh, Rothschilds and Goldman Sachs and all the people with money. And so that was kind of a lucky, lucky um, uh, piece of meeting. And uh, we're still friends today. And he's, you know, this guy had been, you know, advisor to US presidents, you know, three or four times previously and still was at the time on cybersecurity. So we were kind of hitting the right people. Um, and uh, anyway, we went to America. We sat in front of the, um, I think there was this, roll forward, this was uh, 2008, okay. or late 2007, 2008. GFC time. And it was, we were there the day, we were in the boardroom of Bank of America. So in the morning, we'd been to see Wachovia. Wachovia was the big retail bank in, in um, the US. And, you know, we thought we're going to do this great deal with Wachovia and then we'd walked across the road to the Bank of America. And, um, and we were having a meeting in the Bank of America and then everything broke loose. It was, the, um, it was basically someone had, um, the treasurer, treasury of uh, the US government had okayed the um, um, purchase of Wachovia by, by Citibank. And then as everyone knows, it was in the news and it never happened because when we're in the Bank of America, the, the um, CEO of Bank of America and so did the um, Wells Fargo CEO and so forth, all came in and, and said, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. Um, and the rest of his history was that Wachovia was uh, taken over by, by Bank of America and, and, um, and Wells Fargo. Right. So that saved everyone because we thought that would be the biggest recession in the world. Um, sure, and, sure. You know, the world was coming to an end. And you're also involved in this industry to help 
uh, provide protection for people. And that's a very country and regional way of thinking, isn't it? Everyone looks out for each other in the country. Do you think that's part of your makeup? Yeah. I think, you know, growing up and, you know, being part of a part of a, a group of people, a team, being part of a, you know, family, you always look out to your fam look out for your family. You always look out you always want to be able to give them something. And you you know, your people around you, um, you know, and you know, like even to this day I was able to set up, uh, you know, setting up a bursary for young kids in leadership um, through the Duke of Edinburgh Awards, um, so the kids can apply for it, and, and we can make sure that those kids um, go on to get things. Because when I, you know, when I was a kid, the thing that drove me drove me the most was that there wasn't these things, and how do I get hold of them? How do I, you know, go that extra mile to get the things that other kids? didn't have around me. If your son was to come across this footage in 20 or 30 years, what would be the message that you'd want to have him understand and, and take from it? I guess the uh, message is um, to never give up, to always strive to do better. Uh, when, you know, there's lots of people out there that don't have the advantages that he has had. Um, I hopefully have given him those um, advantages and um, he has taken those advantages and, 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 and turned them into something in 20 or 30 years. Big responsibility being a dad, isn't it? It is. It's a big responsibility for parents and godparents and, and so forth and people around you and your friends and your mates. I hope you enjoyed our chat and got some really great tips both for business and for life. Don't forget to have a look at unsungbusinessheroes.com.au and check out all our videos on YouTube. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. All these stories are available in our second book, Unsung Business Heroes, which is available right now. And if you'd like to get a free notification every time there's a new Unsung Business Heroes episode, just hit the subscribe button. Unsung Business Heroes was presented by me, Charles Fairley. The executive producer was Jenny Goggin. Listener.